You're listening to Pastor Rory Rogers as he teaches through the book of Acts. If you have your Bibles ready, let's turn there now. We're in Acts chapter 2, verse 42 today. And Lord, as we just dig into the word, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, enlighten us, encourage us, um, give us charge, Lord. And uh, Lord, bring just conviction, Lord, wherever we fall short of your glory. Just bring that conviction in the gentle way that you do so that we can just repent and just be corrected and moved on towards uh, just knowing you and just having more intimate relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we've kind of been going through the doctrine series, you know, it's, it's been neat to look at the beginning, the beginning of everything. A few weeks ago, we studied the creation uh, account, and then we studied how God created man in his image, and then we studied how man sinned against God, was led away, as James tells us, by his own desires uh, and lusts, and basically sin was conceived, and that sin brought forth death, not only Adam and Eve's death, but corruption upon the earth. An animal was slaughtered, and the skins were used to cover their sin, and uh, and then a spiritual death that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. But the good news was immediately after they fell, within the first conversation the father had with them, uh, is he said in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, that the woman would conceive and give, bo- give birth and her seed, uh, is it's singular, one man would crush Satan with his heel. You know, he would crush Satan's head but bruise his heel. As Jesus at the cross is that seed, Jesus at the cross crushed Satan, uh, was bruised, but destroyed uh, Satan's power. And, and one day we'll see the fullness of all that, and we all can't wait for that. But just incredible to see throughout the Old Testament, just that picture of God's redemptive plan throughout human history to save us from that sin that Adam, you know, and we inherited through Adam and was imputed into our account through our failings and, and mess ups. And as you just look at the Old Testament, you just see, you know, even with Abraham, how, you know, the Lord promised that through Abraham, he would have a seed. And through that seed, all the nations would be blessed. We know that that's Jesus through faith in his name. All the nations will be blessed and saved from their sin. You have the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic law which just shows us that we're a bunch of sinners. We can't do it on our own. We can't keep the law. We need someone else to shed his blood and cover that for us. And it just all points, you know, even through the Psalms are just looking towards, pointing towards the Messiah, pointing towards that seed of Abraham, that seed of Adam that would come and and be obedient And as we studied this week, just through that one man, Adam, sin entered the whole world and every man inherited that sinful nature. So through one man's obedience, every man that believes on Jesus will inherit salvation. And blessed is the man, David said in the Psalms, to whom the Lord does not impute unrighteousness into his account, but the Lord imputes righteousness into his account. And that man's sin is imputed into Jesus' account. As Second Corinthians tells us, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
And so, so awesome as we finished Luke a few, was it a couple weeks ago, a month ago now, you know, we saw Jesus, that one come, the Messiah, the Lord and the Christ. And we saw him come and live a sinless life and live a life of love so much so that he laid his life down to forgive us of our sins. When he, he didn't stay dead, he rose from the dead and spent 40 days here on the earth And he taught and met with the disciples and showed himself alive by many infallible proofs. And just before he ascended into heaven to his homecoming in the clouds, he told the disciples, go into Jerusalem for John baptized with water, but I will baptize with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And 10 days later, after the ascension, the disciples and the apostles and 120 believers were praying and continuing steadfastly in prayer when the Holy Spirit fell and baptized the early church. And one of the manifestations that day was that they spoke in tongues. And that time of tongues was assigned to non-believers who all heard a bunch of Galilean men speaking in 17 different languages from across the then known world. And that sign caused a curiosity in them. That sign caused a confirmation that something spiritual was happening there. And Peter saw that as an opportunity at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 to preach the gospel. And he started out by saying, men and brethren, listen up. This is what you see and and hear now. This is what was prophesied by Joel, that in the last days I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Sons and daughters will prophesy, young men will see visions, old men will dream dreams. And then he goes on to describe what the day of the Lord will look like, what those end times will look like. And then he goes on for the rest of his sermon to preach Jesus from the Old Testament and to show that Jesus was the one that David spoke of that would not see corruption, that would not be left in shale, but that would ascend and, and, and conquer death and, and rise from the dead. And he began to preach to the people there. All of these Jews, some of them physically with their hands, helped crucify Jesus. Some of them, just as a nation of Israel, were guilty of crucifying Jesus and not standing up for Jesus. But Peter was very bold and he said, This Jesus you crucified, the Lord God has made him Lord and Christ. Both kurios in the Greek and Christos. Kurios and Christos. Jesus is the Lord. Jesus is the Christ. But you took him with unlawful hands and you crucified him. And as the gospel went forth and as Jesus went forth, remember the people were cut to the heart. The people were cut to the heart and they just said, what must we do? I mean, can you imagine someone telling you and proving to you that you killed God? Well, as we studied last week, you did kill God. It wasn't just the Jews. It wasn't just the Romans. It was our sin, my sin, your sin, that he was wounded and bruised for our transgressions and our iniquities. And they said, what must we do? And Peter said, repent, be baptized The Holy Spirit will come upon you, this promise that Jesus spoke about. Beautiful thing as we studied last week, these men in verse 40 of uh, chapter 2, it says, with many other words, he testified and exhorting them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So the sermon went on. (laughs) We just have a little snippet, you know, the sermon went on. Be saved from this perverse generation. Perverse speaks of crooked You know, and we talked about that with Adam and Eve sin and how, you know, that's what sin does is it takes something that's good and it perverts it. You name the sin, something behind it had had, it was good. But we in our sin 
mar it, tarnish it, defile it, pervert it, make it crooked. That word can also be untoward. You know, here's God's standard of righteousness and this is how he's designed us for. But to be perverted or crooked is to be untoward that some other direction. And Peter just says, be saved from this untoward generation. For us today, it's the word for us today. Man, I'm sure it was perverted then. I might wager a little, a little more perverse today. You know, I don't know. You guys think about it. <laughs> you know, be saved from the perverse, crooked generation. In verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. Man, can you picture people? Maybe that was you when you got saved. Gladly receiving. You know, what does that look like for someone to gladly receive? I mean, I think of in, in Brazil, you know, when I would open air preach in Brazil, just when people would, you know, make the decision to stand for Jesus, just their face is just glowing, you know, you know, perhaps tears coming down, but man, they are glowing. There's a gladness, man. That's, you know, I'm sure some of you had the same thing. You know, there's such a gladness when we come to Jesus, but they were baptized and that day about 3000 souls were added to them. So they went from 120 to 3000. There's this incredible growth spurt here on the day of Pentecost. 3000 people received the word. And we'll look at that a little more in the last verse of chapter two when we get there. But then in verse 42, says they continued. So here's 3,120 people now all saved. They've been baptized as well. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. And man, I hope that you've got a, this verse underlined. And if you don't underline it, highlight it, circle it, put a star next to it, put it in brackets, whatever you got to do. This is a wonderful verse for us as a new Testament church. And how thankful I am for my pastor, Rob Verdine and Ken Odegaard. And I'm so thankful for, you know, Calvary Chapel and Chuck Smith's example. And I don't say that at all to glorify Calvary or to even glorify Rob or Ken or, you know, these men in my life. I'm thankful for them. I'm so thankful that they were obedient to look at the book of Acts and to see the model of the early church and to follow hard after that. You know, and just how these forefathers for me, you know, in seeking to have a successful church, they just wanted to model their church after the book of Acts. And so that's what we're doing here at Calvary Crook County. We want to model our church after the book of Acts. What is our vision, Rory? What is our agenda? What is our method? I'll tell you what it is. Acts 2.42. To steadfastly be in the word to be in fellowship, to steadfastly be uh, breaking bread with one another and having communion with each other and being in prayer steadfastly. You know, ultimately that will lead to Ephesians chapter four, where a pastor's job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That also is our vision to equip the saints, to equip you guys for the work of the ministry, because myself and the elders, we can't do it on our own. Every one of you needs to listen and have the Lord open your ears to how he would be calling you into ministry of some capacity or another. And ultimately, the vision is Revelation chapter 5, the church before the throne of God, worshiping and crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
that Calvary Crook County, the people that come here or that even say they come here, that, that Prineville and that even a ministry from Calvary out to the rest of the world, that there would be multiple multitudes added to the kingdom, kingdom growth. That's our vision, but it has its root here. Its roots are in Acts chapter two, verse 42. The book of Acts, it's essential for every believer to be familiar with. When was the last time you read through Acts chapter two? Just, you know, maybe in one sitting or, you know, you just, you know, just, you wanted to read through the book, encourage you to do that. Encourage you as a family, you know, if you read two chapters a day in two weeks, you as a family would have read through the book of Acts. You know, pray about doing that as a, as a family, getting into the book of Acts, getting into this model that we have. You know, we're given this model by the church to follow. You know, Luke gives us an orderly account, as he puts it, an orderly account of the early church and the example that we can follow. Now, we can look at the history of the church and it messed up a lot. You know, we've got the Crusades. You know, we've got uh, all sorts of wars and genocides that were done in the name of, uh, of Christ. We've, we have failed, that's for sure. That's why we have to come back to this, uh, you know, this look of this pure church here in Acts because we're just, we can see how far a church can deviate from the truth. How far can the church deviate from the truth? And so I'm excited to outline these principles with you guys in the book of Acts as we walk through it. But it's just, this is New Testament Christianity. Acts chapter 2, it's, it's Christianity in its simplest, most basic form. And sometimes we tend to make it so hard when it really is so simple. And so we see here the key to growth or Four signs of a healthy church, of a vital, alive church, okay? Steadfast, you might underline, continuing in doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. Now, the word steadfast means to be earnest towards, or to be diligently, constantly diligent, or to attend assiduously in all exercises, to give oneself to, I just want to ask, you know, we're going to be doing a lot of health checks today. And I'm looking at myself more than I'm looking at anybody else. Just, Lord, put, put the thermometer in our mouth, under our tongue, you know, or the spiritual thermometer. Are we a healthy church? Am I a healthy individual? Do I steadfastly, continually give myself and wait on the Lord in his doctrine? The American Standard Version of the Bible says they devoted themselves continually or persistently to the apostles doctrine to the word of god just shows us the importance of sound doctrine doesn't it it's so important paul refuted everything in the epistles and in the book of acts that went against sound doctrine and so we want to ask ourselves why is the study of christian doctrine the apostles doctrine so important there's a book uh, called know the truth by Dr. Bruce Milne, and he asks that, why is the study of Christian doctrine so vital? And he gives four answers. Number one, because every Christian is a theologian. Have you ever thought of yourself as that? That's Rory's job, because he has so many years of Bible college. I don't know. I don't. <laughs> you know, 
I'm not to be the only theologian in the church. Every Christian is to be a theologian in the sense that theology is the science of God. And, and, and the theology is the knowledge of God that emerges by being acquainted with God. That acquaintance is brought about by the Holy Spirit as we study the word of God. The more time we spend in the word of God, the more the Holy Spirit, you know, acquaints us with the Father. There's an incredible work that happens there. But it's impossible to be a Christian without being someone who, you know, has a knowledge of God and recognizes the importance of knowing God and being deepened in that, uh, in, in that time with Him. And I think there's just a sad thing happening in the church where people don't feel it's necessary to spend time in the Bible. They don't feel it's necessary to get to know the Lord more. But every Christian is a theologian, needs to be a theologian. It's our call as a church. Secondly, getting doctrine right, Bruce Milton puts, getting doctrine right is the key to getting everything else right. We want to know, you know, how to worship, how to be good witnesses, how to be good husbands or fathers, or, you know, how to have good relationships within the church, conduct ourselves at work, all these things that we want to know. But we're never going to get these things right until we get doctrine right. Thirdly, a study of Christian doctrine is an expression of loving God with all our minds. You know, Jesus says, you know, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord with all of our heart and our soul and our mind. How do we do that? You know, how do I do that? This little thing rattling around between my ears, you know, how do I love the Lord with all of that? By spending time with him, by getting into doctrine. By understanding the importance and getting serious about truth and studying the word. And fourthly, it's impossible, Dr. Milne puts it, it's impossible to separate the truths about Jesus from what the scripture has to say about him. You can't separate that. So the more we understand the scripture, the more we understand who Jesus is, what his life was like, and all of the context about who Jesus is and what he said, what he wanted for us, rather than by getting it and through some other experience or what we feel is right or what somebody else told us. Get in the word. Get into doctrine. It's neat to see that one of the first evidences of the Holy Spirit's presence in the church, we've seen boldness in Peter. You know, we saw the manifestation of tongues there. We've a manifestation of the Spirit there. And, uh, and now we see that uh, the evidence, a major evidence of the Holy Spirit, is this teaching of giving oneself to doctrine. It's just a natural fruit that happens in a Christian's life that they will begin to hunger for sound teaching and, and being in the Word. There was a devotion to the apostles' teaching here. All of a sudden, there was a Bible college, if you will, in Jerusalem that had 3,120 members. And the apostles were the professors. And as they're teaching, they're learning. You know, they're going through the Old Testament and they're seeing how, you know, Jesus from the Old Testament just dovetails and all of the Old Testament, you know, uh, dovetails into the New Testament. It was all pointing for God's plan of what he wanted to happen so that the whole world, even Gentiles, would come to know Jesus and be saved and the kingdom would have people added to it. 
You know, I'm sure that their eyes just would explode every time that they would read something else and see how it pointed to Jesus and remember how he explained that to him when he was risen from the dead. But they didn't make the experience of the Holy Spirit the issue. That wasn't the issue for them. And radical thing just happened as the Holy Spirit manifested himself through the gift of tongues. That was a sign to non-believers. Then the gospel went forth and the sign took the backstage. The sign, you know, was basically, it all pointed to Jesus. It all pointed to let's get into the word. It wasn't the main issue for them. You know, some people say, you know, doctrine divides and causes red faces and, you know, flipping pages and maybe perhaps arguments. And of course, those get out of hand. So let's just skip doctrine. Let's just get into experience. I don't think that's what any of the apostles would say. I don't think that's what the Bible teaches. And I actually think that's evidence of immaturity in the faith and perhaps even pride. And I say that because I've known some people that, you know, they would not submit to authority in the church, which we're told to do. Hebrews chapter 17, verse 13, or 13, 17, rather. Maybe it's the other way around. Someone check that for me. <laughs> I used to own it because as a high school pastor, I'd have to use it all the time, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, we're to submit to those uh, and obey those who rule over us in the faith because they watch out for our souls. And so it says, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable. And I know some of these people that they would come and they would say, I no longer need the Bible or your instruction, pastor, because God speaks to me without the Bible. I'm a prophet. And the funny thing is, is the things he was saying went against what the Bible was teaching and he began to get really puffed up. He began to be very prideful. And, you know, as we're told first Peter, you know, that there's, there's no prophecy, uh, that has its own private interpretation. You know, I think we've been given the word today and anything that's spoken out from the heart of God, it's going to be confirmed in the book that we've been given. And so, uh, you know, we see also the apostles' succession in this, that it wasn't one man Peter to one man so-and-so and down on and through forth, and that was the authority. But Second Timothy chapter 2 tells us that these guys would train faithful men, who would in turn train faithful men, who would in turn train faithful men, and so on and so forth, so that the gospel could get throughout the then-known world. All the way over here to Prineville today, and I'm so thankful that those guys were all obedient to that, aren't you guys? And so, you know, the, uh, as one man put it, the devotion was a devotion to the authority of God's word. That's what we see in Acts chapter two. He went on to say the spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the word of God. That's what the spirit of God does. You know, he, he's not going to do his own thing so that, you know, oh, we don't need the Bible anymore. We don't know what the, we don't need what the Holy Spirit revealed to us, you know, through the prophets and breathed out by God. No, we don't need that. No, he's going to cause a devotion to the submission of the word of God. And it's just sad to see how many churches, and I've been a part of these, that have departed from the teaching of God's word. They major in psychology and philosophy and they have a reverence to man's ideas rather than a reverence for the word of God. You know, there's dozens of books in the bookstore talking about church growth methods, you know, how to make your church grow, this and that, and none of them have to do with Acts 2.42. 
you know, and in fact, a lot of them, you know, say, hey, go out in your community, have a note card, ask what the people want to hear and ask them what they don't want to hear. And guess what they want to hear about every time and what they don't want to hear. How can I make money? How can God bless my life? Don't tell me about my sin. Don't tell me about the cross. I don't want to hear about blood. I don't want to hear about death. I don't want to hear about any of that stuff. Just tell me how I can prosper. Well, you can't have one without the other. We only prosper because Jesus died for us. You know, and even then it's not a health and wealth type prosperity until finally we're in heaven with Jesus. And so, man, pastors nowadays aren't preparing a meal for the flock. They're not diligently showing themselves approved, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, plowing straight lines in the word so that the sheep can eat and be healthy and be well nourished. That's the pastor's chief responsibility. And in a couple of weeks, we'll see in Acts chapter 6, the apostles knew that. And bless their hearts, they were serving in the community and working in the soup kitchen of that day. And they realized they were neglecting their times in prayer as they weren't doing a good enough job. And that would cause more time that they need to be serving in the community. And they weren't giving themselves to the study of the word or to prayer. And so they said, hold on, guys, this isn't right. Let's pray. Let's raise up. Some deacons here, seven men, good men, full of the Holy Spirit, you know, to take on this ministry so that we can give ourselves to the word of God and to prayer. They knew that. I know that. We need that. These are things that we'll always major in as a church because it's been modeled to us in the book of Acts. And it's been said, you know, when the church was all that he wanted it to be, then he did all that he wanted it to do. He did all that he wanted to do. Methods of church growth, they change all the time. You know, but the principles in Acts chapter 2 never do. It's been said, methods are many, principles are few. Methods are always changing, principles never do. And so we will always have as our foundation Acts chapter 2 verse 42. And we will pray the Lord, you know, if there's anything that would birth out of that. You know, give us vision, Lord, but we never want to have our own idea and ask the Lord to bless it. We will always cry out for the Lord to give us his idea and we'll come alongside of it. The principles here in Acts 2.42. And so as a church, we will major in the word. We bring our Bibles to church. We get ready to get in, get deep, you know, and study doctrine. But also as individuals, we need, it's so necessary and essential to have devotional time with the Lord. It's essential to have personal quality time spent with the Lord. And we're going to look at some verses here. Get ready to, to, to flip in your Bible and get your finger all stretched out. In Proverbs, you don't have to flip to Proverbs 26, flip to Joshua 1.8. But in Proverbs 26, we're told where there's no wood on the fire, the fire goes out. You know, we need to have wood on our fire. We need to be being fed. We need to keep this fire fed. And Joshua 1.8, man, this young Joshua taking over for uh, Moses. I suppose he wasn't all that young, younger than Moses anyways. But he says, this, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate day and night in it, that you may observe to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. 
And so this is just a health check for us, okay? As we read through this, let's just examine ourselves. We've got the thermometer in. We've got the little sticky things on our chest that's causing the beep, beep thing to go, you know? And let's just examine ourselves. Have the doctor, the great physician say, Rory, you're healthy, buddy. Or Rory, you have a little bit of cholesterol, you know? (laughs) Let's get that taken care of. Let's be healthy spiritually, okay? So does the book of the law ever leave your mouth? Do you meditate upon it day and night? If you do, your way will be made prosperous. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. We're going to be in Psalms for about four verses, so or four different references. So Psalms 1, verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, And in his law, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. So there's two different actions here. Which describes you? Are you a man that you're in the counsel of the ungodly? That's where you're getting your wisdom. You're standing in the path of sinners, sitting in the seat of the scornful. Or are you the man whose delight is in the word of God? You're meditating on it day and night. You're like a tree that, you know, the more you're with the Lord, the more your roots grow down deep. And though the trials might come and cause you to bend a little bit and the floods come and go past your trunk, you know, you are solidly grounded and there is fruit coming naturally off of your life. Whatever you do will prosper. What a contrast. Flip over to Psalm 119. You know, the whole chapter of Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. Don't worry, we're not going to read the whole thing. Might be better for you if we did, but we're not going to. (laughs) Psalm 119.9, the whole chapter just dealing with the benefit of the word of God in a man or woman's life. But how, verse 9, how can a young man cleanse his way? Young men, have you ever wondered that, you know? You older guys, you don't need to worry about it anymore, right? You know, but man, how can I as a man be pure, be clean, be righteous, you know, be a, be a man of integrity? How can I cleanse my way? By taking heed according to your word. Not just getting the word up here in your brain, but by doing it. James tells us, you know, a man who hears the word, but's not a doer of the word. You know, he's like a guy that looks in the mirror and sees that he missed a spot shaving, but doesn't do anything about it. You know, for three days later, by the time he gets around to shaving again, he has this big patch there. And it's like, man, you, you saw the reflection of who you were, but you didn't change it. When the Lord shows us the reflection of who we are in his word, we got to take heed. We got to get rid of those things. We got to shave that patch off. We got to take heed to the word. And as we're doing the word, we will have our way cleansed. And then over in verse 11, just two verses later, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. We hide the word in our heart by meditation upon it, memorizing it, spending time in it. And just like Jesus combating the temptations of the evil one of Satan there in in Luke chapter uh, four, I believe it is, uh, just like Satan combated with the uh, word of God, speaking the word out in power, the sword of the spirit, so we can do as well. And then in Psalm 119 verse 105, classic passage Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. 
You know, do you just wonder what God's doing in your life? Do you have no clue where this path is going? Spend time in his word. Let his word illuminate uh, your day and your week and your month. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, we're told, man shall not live by bread alone. And boy, man, if there's anyone that loves some bread, you know, it's me. <laughs> man, I, I can handle living on bread alone. Uh-uh, I can't. I don't just need a tri-tip and a baked potato with lots of butter and sour cream on it, you know? I need the Word of God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the man, mouth of God. You know, a man can live some over 40 days uh, without food. But how our spirits get so weak, you know, how we, we just, uh, man, we're in trouble if we don't spend time in the word. We become weak and easily picked off by the wicked one. John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Want to be a disciple of the Lord? Spend time in his word. You know, he says, why do you call me Lord and do not do the things that I tell you to do. If you're my disciple, you'll spend time in my word. John chapter 17, verse 8, as Jesus is praying out over the disciples right before he's crucified, he prays something that says, set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. So how are we set apart from the world and the way the world works? How are we sanctified by the word, spending time in the word, we're set apart. Acts chapter 17, verse 11, there was a group of people in Berea called the Bereans, go figure. And they were known to test whatever Paul would say by going to the scriptures and searching the scriptures to see if these things were so. That should be you guys as well. That should be myself. Look in the word to see if what Rory says is really biblical truth. And it's been neat to see you guys doing that. It's been neat to see you not taking my word for it, but searching the scriptures yourselves. Be a Berean. Search the scripture daily. Romans chapter 8 verse 10 says, Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Do you want to grow in faith to do radical things for Jesus? Are you spending time in the word? Spending time in the word will directly affect your faith. Colossians 3.16 says, let the word dwell in you richly. And we studied this verse yesterday, how it's almost a parallel passage to Ephesians chapter 5. And Ephesians chapter 5 says, you know, don't be drunk with wine, but... Uh, but be filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on to say and show us how husbands can love their wives as Christ loved the church. Wives can submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Children can obey their parents. Uh, employers can obey their employees. And employees can, you know what I mean, employers can treat their employees well. And employees can submit to their masters and so on and so forth. But it all has its root. It all can work out right if we're filled in the Spirit. Well, then Colossians has a very similar passage by the same author on the same subject. And he says, hey, if you want to be a good husband, you want to be a good wife, you want to be a good child, you want to be a good employer, you want to be a good employee, be diligent to be in the word. Continue in the word. And it's a parallel passage to be filled with the spirit. 
as we're in the, uh, in the word, we're going to be filled with the spirit, continually filled. Rivers of living water just torrenting out of us. Second Timothy chapter two, verse 15 says, study to show yourself approved, a workman who can rightly divide the word. This isn't just for pastors. You guys study, know the word. Always be ready to give a defense for the truth that's within you. When the ding dong on the doorbell goes and it's the Jehovah's Witnesses and you don't know what to say. Sure, you've been a Christian for 35 years and you don't know how to talk to the Jehovah's Witnesses. (laughs) Study to show yourself approved. A workman that doesn't need to be ashamed. Not someone, hold on, let me call my pastor or hold on, let me. Hey, know your Bible and know how you can prove that Jesus is God. Okay? Show yourself approved. And then 2 Timothy 3.16. Flip to this one. I know as I go so fast, you can't get to everyone. Flip to 2 Timothy 3.16. Man, this is a, a foundational passage for us as Christians. It was the first passage we camped on uh, in our doctrine series. And it should be right up there as with John 3.16. is 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it's literally God breathed. He breathed out the word. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, when you hear that passage and it's telling us something that's profitable for us, man, imagine if I was Steve Jobs, the maker of the iPod, iPad, iPhone, all of that stuff, and it's a business convention here, and I'm giving you the secret to my success. Pens would be out, computers would be tapping, recordings would be being made. We want to hear how we can profit and be successful like you, Steve Jobs. Well, here we're told by Paul how we can profit as Christians and how we can succeed in Christ by spending time in the word. As we spend time in the word, we'll be uh, deep in doctrine, we'll be corrected and kept on the right course with the shepherd's staff, we'll be instructed in righteousness, and the man of God will be thoroughly equipped, ready for good work. And that's the vision of this church, that the saints would be equipped for the ministry, How are the saints equipped for the ministry? By being in the God-breathed, God-inspired word. 1 Peter 2, verse 22 says, As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word. I'm I'm learning what that means with my 10-month-old little girl. I wake up with her in the morning, every morning. I'm the one that wakes up with her. No, I'm kidding. Once every three days or something, I wake up with her. And... uh, (laughs) I know. Uh, so I'm holding her. We're having a great time. You know, she kind of gets a little crabby. So I try to shove some rice cereal down her gullet, you know, and hey, be happy. You know, okay, we're having a good time. And, you know, you can tell she's starting to get a little hungry. And, and you know, you'd think when Lindsay comes out and good morning, everybody. Good morning, mom. You think it'd be like, oh, you know, or whatever. But instead it's, you know, she wants mom and she wants milk now, <laughs> you know, and then we'll be cool. You know, it's the same with us. We should not be able to function until we have that milk. You know, as Christians, we really should all be cruising around with milk mustaches. You know, we should be able to tell, you know, hey, I can tell you've been in the word. You've got that. You know, it's the same thing. 
We can tell when we've been drinking the milk of the word or eating the meat of the word, the deeper things of the word. And finally, 1 John 2.14, he says, I've written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God dwells in you. How can we be strong even as young men, young women? You know, we can apply this to all of us, certainly. Have the word in us. Let the word dwell richly in us. It's been said that when the Bible is put on the shelf, the Christian will surely follow. And I remember those days when I would leave my Bible in our van as a, as a young man growing up, and it would stay in the van all week long until we went to church again. And then it would stay in the van all week long. And maybe I'd take it in, but I'd lose it because I was not using it. And one time I remember it was my dad's King James Version Bible, leather, you know, kind of more sentimental than anything else, left it out in the, in the dashboard of the car on a hot day. And the sun just wrinkled and crinkled and, you know, it was not looking good at all. You know what it was? It was a picture of me. Wrinkled, crinkled, not doing well spiritually. I had a spiritual fever because I hadn't been in the Word. And my life showed it. My life showed it until I finally started getting into the word and spending time with him. You know, this Holy Spirit gives us power to be effective. We've been studying, but it's our responsibility to get into the word and allow him to equip us to be effective as well. And sometimes that means shutting off the TV, turning off the radio, not going to that event or that thing or that, you know, extra job thing or whatever that takes up our time so that we have no time in the word. I really think the Lord is doing a work in our church or calling our church to restructure their priority list, you know, to make sure that what's number one is something that's going to edify you and build you up in doctrine, sound truth, fellowship, breaking of bread and in prayers. And if those things aren't number one, there's unhealth, there's disease, there's cancer and a tumor is going to begin to form. We got to make sure that anything else in our life trickles down from our time with Jesus, our worship of him, our study of the word, sound doctrine, fellowship, communion, breaking of bread, and prayers. Anything else, it's just a tumor waiting to happen. It's spiritual disease waiting to happen. Tozer said that whatever keeps me from the Bible is my enemy. Whatever harmless it may seem to be. You know, there's good things out there but they become God things so quick. Good things that take our attention, take our love, take our passion, take our energy, take our money. And all of a sudden we don't have any of that stuff for Jesus. As harmless as it might seem, if it keeps us from the word, it's got to go or it's got to be reprioritized. Spurgeon said a Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone that is not, you know, What's your Bible? I just got a new one, so be easy on me, okay? Hopefully it'll be falling apart here soon. There's this song that uh, is on the Calvary or CSN. Now it's the Christian Satellite Network. And it says, take the time to read, for Jesus took the time to bleed. That's, a, that's an okay trade, isn't it? That's a great trade. And so I encourage you, if you find yourself in a season where you're not reading, Break the habit today. Break the habit today and begin to read. Because nothing less than a whole Bible is going to make a whole Christian. 
And just be honest with yourself, you know, on the scale, you know, are you, you know, full of the word? Are you healthy? Are you in the green? Are you, and that's awesome. Praise the Lord. Maybe you are. I think there are people in the church that are, and maybe you're three quarters of a tank and you're struggling and you know, you, you're, yeah, you know, what a word today, Rory, I'm going to reprioritize my life so that I can be in the green. And, you know, maybe eh, eh, green light, you know, you're, you hope you're a car and not a plane because you're going to crash, you know, uh, you know, red. Okay. Okay, it's good. It's good to be shown that we're in the red. It's like being shown that, oh, I missed a spot shaving. So let's let the Lord kick us to the green. Let's let the Lord kick us to the fullness of all that he has for us in doctrine. But they continued steadfastly, diligently. They gave themselves to being in the word, both corporately and in their individual lives. We also see that they also continued steadfastly in fellowship. The koinonia, the much more than being together, although that was it as well. But they also interacted with the body. And there in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, we'll come back to verse 43. It says, now all those who believed were together and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and good and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. So they were genuinely concerned. There was fellowship. There was interaction. There was genuine concern for the needs of one another. This beautiful thing was taking place. They were daily in one accord in the temple. Rory, you've got a Sunday morning and a Wednesday night. What the? That is too much, buddy. Hey, daily they were in the temple. And they lived in Jerusalem, a massive city. We live in Prineville. Give me five minutes. Drive down here. Spend some time in the Word and in fellowship. Let's encourage one another. And then, you know, get back to doing what you're doing. You know, my heart just, I've been noticing more. I, mean, I don't want this church to be open during the week that you can come and spend time and just worship and turn on the worship music and just spend time with Jesus here. Come daily to the temple. But they got together daily. There was this genuine oneness. They broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. You know, they reached out to one another. And may the Lord do a work of his spirit in this church. Now that home fellowships aren't continuing for the summer, may they continue, but in our homes, individually. Taking the initiative to invite people over and be spontaneous. And hey, you know what? I don't really know so-and-so very well or so-and-so very well. Hey, come over. Let's have dinner. You know, let's, let's talk about the Bible study and pray for one another and encourage one another. Be spontaneous about it. You know, what an error it is if we'll think, oh, well, so-and-so will invite them over or someone will, someone will reach out to them. No, if the Lord puts someone on your heart, just be spontaneous. Be willing to have your schedule interrupted to, you know, have this fellowship. And I bet you'll be blessed. I bet you'll get hooked and you'll want more and more. You'll find yourself growing in your walk with the Lord as you're encouraging one another. And uh, iron sharpening iron would be a good example there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 says this, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. What does it mean to come to church? Does it mean just come? You know, fellowship can be such a habit in, up, out, in, up, out, 
Let's come in. Let's have maybe three minutes or two minutes of greeting and shake someone's hand and then run back to your seat. No, let's, let's have fellowship. Let's not let it be a habit or get in this rut of in, sit down, be quiet, get up, run out, you know, get out of here as fast as we can. And I've been there too. And I know how that it's easy to fall into that, even if you're not even meaning to. But what does it mean to assemble together? Well, let's say you go to Costco and you buy one of those fancy new swing set treehouse things, you know, to put in your backyard. It's one thing to gather all the pieces together. <laughs> all right. Kids are like, great. You know, it's another thing to assemble those pieces, each part doing its work, which we're told by Paul. It's a picture of the body of Christ. Really, it's a body would be a better example. Every member doing its share being important, the eye, the pinky, the pinky toe, they've all got their part to do. As we're assembled together, then we're useful for a function. We're useful for ministry. We're living stones, Peter says, living stones being built up into this house of God. Each one doing our share, being assembled, not just hanging out and being a part, but assembling ourselves together. And it just goes on to say, but exhort one another all the more as you see the day approaching especially in the end times, all the more let's be assembling, let's be fellowshipping, continuing daily in the temple with one accord. Jesus sent the disciples out in twos. You know, they needed fellowship. In Moses' battle with the Amalekites, the Lord said, Moses, go stand over in front of the battle with your hands raised. And as your hands are up, we'll win the battle for you. I'll win the battle for you. And so as time started out, this is great. This isn't too tough. I've got some nice biceps, you know, and I can keep my hands up. And as time went on, a little shaking started to happen, you know, and oh, I'm not very strong anymore. And, and Aaron and her saw that Moses was struggling in the battle to keep his hands raised. So they came and they sat him on a rock and they lifted his hands up for him. What a picture of fellowship. You guys, you can't do it on your own throughout the week. You know, we're told that, you know, a three-strand cord is not easily broken. Two are better for one, than one. If someone falls, the other guy can pick them up. We need to have our arms raised up by each other and know, hey, I'm going through it. I'm struggling. I'm tempted or I'm hurting or someone's picking on me or whatever. Hey, I'm going to pray for you this week. You know, I had two men come up to me this week and just broken and hurting and hard. And I just said, you know what? When I fast on Thursday for God to do a revival in our church, I'm going to fast for you and I'm going to fast for you that God would encourage your heart. That's fellowship, lifting each other's hands up so the battle can be won. They also continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. No doubt sitting each other with each other and eating, but you know, there's constant, is it eating together or communion? Probably both, <laughs> probably both. Eating, you know, we see that fellowship and eating with gladness and and uh, maybe both at the same time. Who knows? Uh, the early church also continued steadfastly in prayer, which is a vision of this church. Just as there was a pulse of prayer, a sign of life throughout the book of Acts, so there is in this church. In one form or another, we will always have a prayer meeting in this church that you can come to and we can cry out and wait on the Lord and, and petition him. You know, we never, you know, let us never forget, Lord, what a privilege prayer is. Shouldn't be a habit. Shouldn't be a have to thing. I don't think I can ever say I've mastered prayer. You know, that's why we're reading R.A. Torrey's book, How to Pray in the Prayer Meeting. And we're all growing. We're like, wow, I never thought of that. Oh, yeah. You know, we're growing. 
You know, let's continue together to find a time, to find a time where we can pray during the day. I understand there are some that just can't make it to the pulse, and I understand that. Commit with me to pray without ceasing wherever you're at. But I also encourage you, maybe you can make it to the polls. And maybe just ask the Lord to help you rearrange your priority schedule so that you can come and we can corporately pray together. But when I'm busy, what gets bumped out? Prayer or the word or fellowship. Those are the things that go. And so, man, make that time, carve out that time, go for a walk. You know, Adam and Eve walked with the Lord in the cool of the day. Hard to fall asleep in the cool of the day, you know, and when you're walking. Great time to pray. Hard to fall asleep when you're on your knees, you know, praying to the Lord. And you get a cramp in your leg because you never sit like that, you know. I've been there. You know, ah, thank you, Lord, for keeping me awake with this Charlie horse, you know. And, uh, you know, but bedside, head on your pillow, not always the best place for effective prayer because you're out. You know, not that you shouldn't pray there. But every effort you make to be near to the Lord is such a blessing. And the enemy loves to condemn us and say, you don't pray. You never pray. You only prayed once this week. And the Lord's saying, man, I was so blessed by that time, that walk that you took in the cool of the day to be with me. I saw that. I noticed that. I heard your cry. I heard your prayer. Yeah, I'm doing a growing work in you in this, but well done. Well done. Be encouraged if that's you. But we have to fight to make our prayer time happen. And I am so thankful I would not be able to function without the pulse, without, without praying with one another, some capacity or another. It's been said Satan trembles when even the weakest of saints goes upon his knees. Goes upon his knees. And, you know, another man said, you know, he probably had more of a sense of humor, but he said, seven days without prayer makes one week. You know, probably true in, in a few different ways, I'm sure. But what happened to the church in Acts as they continued steadfastly in these things? Well, let's look at verse 43. Fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. You know, and then uh, even more, but we'll camp there on verse 43. Fear came on every soul. You know, for some, I'm sure that fear led to salvation. Proverbs tells us the fear of the Lord is to hate all evil. But also signs and wonders were done through the apostles. You know, it's true that signs and wonders are evident in the New Testament. We read all about them throughout the book of Acts. You know, signs and wonders, you know, it's important to know signs and wonders will never and should never replace the gospel or the teaching of God's word. But rather they should validate the gospel. That is so important to know when we talk about signs. Now, signs are just that. They are signs. They point to something. A sign of of a biblical proportion should point people to Jesus into deeper knowledge of him, deeper relationship of him, and ultimately filling and and doing and being part of Acts chapter 2 verse 42. You know, if it doesn't point to Jesus, it's not a sign to Jesus. It's a sign of something else. And, uh, you know, how people tend to be so enamored by signs and focus on signs. And Stuart and I almost did a little joke video, you know, where we were going to go out into the street and find a sign and just be like, oh, it's a sign. Oh, it's incredible, you know, or whatever. And it's like, no, the sign points to the public pool. Now, that's the place you want to be today, you know. You don't want to be at the sign. Big deal about the sign. It's where it points to that matters. 
You know, Matthew chapter 7, 15 says we're to beware of false prophets, you know, because wolves are going to come in sheep's clothing, ravenous wolves. You know, we're also told that a wicked and adulterous generation seeks after the sign. You know, if a sign happens, praise the Lord, it points to Jesus. But we're not to just be all about seeking after the sign. You know, we're to seek to who the sign points to. We're also told that in the Olivet Discourse, you guys are familiar with it, that false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So if signs are biblical and there's also bad guys that are going to come around and try and deceive us with signs, what do we do? What do we do? In fact, 2 Thessalonians tells us that the Antichrist is going to come with all deception and all signs and lying wonders. And so we're told in 1 Thessalonians that we're to test all things, to hold fast to what is good. You know, the spirit, 2 Timothy 4, 1, the spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. No doubt accompanied by these signs that Jesus told us about. And so 1 John 4, 1, beloved, don't believe every spirit, but test every spirit to see if they're of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so I kind of made up this list How do we know if a sign or a wonder is from the Lord? And really, number one is the most important thing. And and everything else kind of is, you know, just another test off of number one. Number one, do you see it in the word or does it oppose the word? Do you see it in the word? A lot of these signs that are happening today, I don't see it in the word. And so I don't jump on the bandwagon with these things. Number two, what does the sign or rather the prophet doing the sign, what does the man or woman say about Jesus? What does the man or woman say about Jesus? And we're talking about the Jesus of the Bible. What does it say about his uh, deity, his humanity? Who is Jesus to this ministry or this person? In fact, first John goes on to say, you know, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And that was just one of the signs that they would use back then or one of the tests back then number three does it edify the body first corinthians chapter 14 is the body being edified is it being validated and confirmed you know someone's saying oh i got healed okay let's see it you know uh well i didn't really yeah you didn't get healed you know and you can look at the healings from the Bible and see, okay, now when Jesus healed somebody, man, they were walking and leaping and praising God. He was, his skin became like a baby's skin or his ankles and tendons and all of that gave strength, you know, easily verified these miracles. Of course, this is just all trickled down from, is it in the word? What does it say about Jesus? Is it done decently and in order? Does it promote Christian maturity and growth in the word? Or does it promote empty emotionalism and wonder seeking because I've been around this stuff. And I remember my Bible sat in my van and got sun damaged while I was out wonder seeking. (laughs) I didn't have my sword. I didn't have my Bible. I wasn't feasting upon the word. I wasn't growing in doctrine. I just wanted the emotional or wonder type buzz. I wanted that emotional high. Does it go hand in hand with the fruits of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. 
Self-control. These are important things to look at if it's really a manifestation of the Spirit. Is the gospel being peddled? In other words, is the ministry or minister making bank, making tons of money? Now, of course, you know, ministers, you know, don't uh, muzzle an ox as it treads out the grain. A workman is worthy of his wages. But, you know, even a guy that I, you know, I I knew he was a false teacher, but I was kind of reading some about him. He was making a hundred grand a year, you know, and, you know, whatever. Just test that, you know, is, is the fleece, is the flock being fleeced, you know, something to look at? Are they just all about money? Are they trying to get your money from you? And finally, is the gospel of salvation that we find in the Bible being preached? Or is sin condemned? Are those things happening? You know, or is it just an emotional time? You know, one guy, uh, same guy that I'm thinking of, you know, he would, you know, he he was known to be kind of crazy, obviously, and he would, uh, you know, punt women in the stomach who had stage four stomach cancer, things like that, you know. Uh, And one time I watched them call down angels for five minutes. Angels, 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 angels. And the people began to convulse and this and that. And I began to think about Revelation, you know, uh, and how, you know, the angel said, hey, don't worship me. Don't even look to me. Look to Jesus. It's about Jesus. Let's call on Jesus. Jesus, come. We need you. Come quickly. Like John finished Revelation. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. And, uh, you know, let's just read the rest of the chapter. And, you know, we'll probably dig in a little deeper in this concept here. But um, verse 44, now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and good and divided them among all as anyone had need. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Stuart, you can come on up and we can put our things aside. And Lord, as we... Just even began today looking at your redemptive plan throughout, throughout all history. From the minute man had sinned and been caught in their sin, Lord, you had the plan for the God-man Jesus Christ to come and crush Satan's head on the cross. And Lord, we're so thankful for that. And Lord, just as we have been in the same place as the people in Acts chapter 2, where we've been confronted with the reality that we killed Jesus. It was our sin that nailed him there. Lord, we cry out the same way they did, what shall we do? And I pray today that those who have not repented, as Peter's answer was, repented and been baptized, had the Holy Spirit pour out upon them and fill them, Lord, that today they would allow you into their lives. And more than that even, Lord, that they would give their lives completely over to you. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Prineville, Oregon. For more information about Calvary Chapel or to contribute to this ministry, you can go to our website, www 
calvarycrookcounty.com, or you can write to us at P.O. Box 378, Prineville, Oregon, 97754. Thanks again for listening, and God bless.